Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Ministries International. We value the Word of God as an instrument of growth in our lives, using it to mend our ways, align our thinking, and ultimately bring restoration. We trust that you will be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. I start if I was if I was thirsty at this moment and I didn't want the healthy option of, of water instead I would have chosen something fizzy what drink would most people grab or think of when they think of something fizzy nowadays for for something to quench their thirst now there you go <laughs> coke coke would be the Kombucha <laughs> if you're in Florida, but for most of us, Steve, it's it's Coke, the world-renowned drink or beverage of called Coca-Cola. Now, a lot of us recognize it through various means, its name, its logo, its color, the trademark bottle shape, which they, be believe it or not, they did trademark, and a lot of us recognize it so well. But why? What is the reason why we recognize Coke and it's on the first, it's on the, on the tip of our tongues when we think of something fizzy. And the reason for that is we know Coke and Coca-Cola by its brand, its, its, its identity. But let me, let me give you some, some interesting facts. Did you know Coke is no longer the world's largest and most valuable brand? It hasn't been at number one since 2013, over six years now. In fact, since 2013, when it was surpassed, it's now dropped to sixth. It's the sixth most valuable brand in the world today. And that's according to Forbes. All my stats I'm giving you today is according to the latest 2019 valuable brand stats from Forbes. Does anybody want to know? Guess who's number one right now in the world in terms of most valuable brand? Peter's on the money again. Yes, that's correct. Apple. Um, and that's thank, thanks mainly to iPhones and iPads, who actually came out prior to 2010, and, and iPads was a little bit later than that. And within, within, a, few, within a few months of 2013, Apple quickly rose and surpassed Coke as the most valuable brand. They weren't even in the top 15 or 20 most valuable brands before that. A meteoric rise thanks to these new devices that propelled them up in the market. And like you know, as you can see, I like Apple. And uh, I was first attracted to Apple as a brand and its products before they were mainstream and popular. In fact, that, that is why I was attracted to them. Growing up, as a teen entering into my young adulthood, just starting my career, still studying in university, I was drawn to their whole advertising campaign, running from 97 to 2002, which was centered around the slogan at that time, which was called Think Different. Now, the main competitor at that time for, for computer hardware, which was their primary business, and that's where their MacBooks and their, their computers were known, was IBM. IBM was their competitor. And their slogan was Think. 
So we can see what Apple was trying to do. They were trying to take a, a direct jab at their competitor and saying, think different. But you see, they had to do that. They were the, the, the outsider, the dark horse, if you will. They had to try play an underhand, get people to think different. And say what you will, but they definitely did change the market by taking a different strategy. And we know till today, iPhone has changed the market and revolutionized phones and, and devices, just like the iPads today, even though there were similar devices on the market. You see, the reason why I was attracted to them, like I said, is I saw myself, and maybe I'll still see myself as a maverick. I like the movie Top Gun, so you can see where that comes from. But a maverick is someone who swims upstream, goes against the grain, and goes against the norm of the day. After getting an iPhone and a MacBook nearly at that time, before it was fashionable and popular, you know, looking back now, it's a bit jarring for me to see how mainstream Apple have become. Like I said, they're number one on the summit of the most valuable brand. And in fact, today they are valued at $205 billion. So like I said, me picking the dark horse, thinking it was a dark horse, has now become the, the favorite and the front runner of brands in the world. But Apple finds itself in an interesting position right now where it's being rejected by younger mavericks of this age just because of their popularity and the commercial success. These mavericks today reason their rejection stating that Apple has lost its vision and impact it once had as an emerging voice. They say Apple is now more concerned with commercial success, staying at the top of the brand summit instead of seeking real change that the advert we just watched promoted. You know what? Maybe these young mavericks are right. So you must be really confused as why am I talking about Apple today? You see, I began to ask myself another a question of another mainstream brand that I, I started to think maybe has followed the same fate as Apple throughout history. And please understand where I'm going, but that brand is Christianity. Is Christianity today at the point that it finds itself being criticized and rejected by young mavericks all over due to its size, popularity, and commercial success. The main point of rejection that people point towards Christianity is that it's no longer relevant. More concerned with commercial success, staying at the top of the brand summit, instead of seeking real change, the gospel itself describes and exhorts. And I ask myself, you know what? Maybe these young mavericks are right. Now, why am I talking about Christianity as a brand and comparing it to Apple? Well, just give me a bit more grace and we can unpack what the word brand means, its term and its meaning. You see, brand, the word brand derived from an old Norse word, very similar to Afrikaans, all, all of you who are Afrikaans. And the Norse word was brat. And it's easy for us to know what that means if we come from South Africa as brunt means to burn. And you Americans will know where brand comes from as livestock was literally branded by putting a hot iron of a logo or symbol in the coals and then, and then plastered onto a, onto a cattle and they burned the symbol into livestock and they branded that livestock. But did you know this dates back to more than 4,000 years ago in the early Bronze Age? 
basically just before the time of ancient Egypt, they can track brands and the first use of branding. Now, of course, branding has evolved over the centuries. Like we said, farmers claiming their property on their livestock, but also artisans and craftsmen claiming credit for their work, putting their mark on signatures of pots that they found in the tombs of, of ancient Egypt and Greece and Rome. Also factories in the Industrial Revolution claiming their products are better than others, putting their symbol on it. And like we know today, where companies are claiming that their products, such as Apple, are better and different than others when compared. You see, branding in its meaning and origin is literally illustrated by a distinguishing mark. A mark on an item that sets it apart from all others. That's what brand is. Like we know today, we spoke about Coca-Cola, we spoke about Coke, but a lot of people also know Nike as a distinguishing mark. That tick, Nike would say, sets it apart from everybody else. So if we had to go back throughout history and look at the, our Christian faith, what would be the logo or the distinguishing mark or the brand of Christianity? A lot of you would say the cross. But before that, what did the early church what did they identify themselves when they when they met each other in the street? How did they identify them? Are you the one? Are you are you part of someone who's on the way? Are you a follower of Christ? They didn't necessarily feel comfortable to ask that face to face because they were under persecution. It could have cost them their lives if they, if they asked the wrong person. So what they used to do is they used to draw. They used to draw what on the ground? A fish. And let me share another picture with you. All right, what you're seeing in front of you, what you're seeing in front of you right now is, is a depiction of the, of, the, of the Christian fish. And it's in Greek, in capital letters, in the Greek words. And that Greek word that you see in front of you is made, all capital letters, is called fish in Greek, which is ichthus. Now, the reason why they use fish is they use it as an acronym or transliteration. And each letter stood for something. The first letter, I. Is Jesus, then the, the Greek there that you guys would say is X, is Christos, and God is Theos, and Son is Theos, and Savior. Now, I'm probably not doing it justice, so let, let, let someone with a greater caliber tell us what it means. Jesus Christos, Theos, Sotir. Jesus Christos, Theos, Sotir. There you go, as Dad would say. There you can see that right drawing this fish on the ground, and normally what would happen is if I bumped into somebody, and I suspected by, you know, this person is not a normal person in the Roman civilization, I, I get a sense that they are a believer. What I would do is I would make eye contact with them and, and draw only the first part, the top arc of the fish. So you have to imagine them as two separate lines. I would draw the top arc. And if they... They knew what I was saying, and if they were a believer, they would respond in like manner, and they would complete by drawing the bottom arc, and they would complete forming the fish. And this would mean that we are followers of the way. We are Christians. We are followers of Christ. Now, that was the first symbol or logo or, or brand, if you will, that Christians would follow. But now today, we... 
Well, let me read you a quote, first of all, from a second century theologian called Tertullian. And he put it this way. He referred, he referred to Christianity as such. We little fishes, after the image of our ichthus, Jesus Christ, are born in water. Now, the fish we know is so symbolic for our faith, and they actually adopted a, of the pagan symbol of the fish because they didn't want to draw attention. If they, was, if they picked a new logo or a new symbol, like the cross, if you will, they would have been drawing a lot of attention to themselves. So they had to pick something that was in existence already. And the fish was for, for other reasons and symbolism. But you see, with the Greek word, ichthus, they adopted it and they changed it. Why the fish? Well, we know Jesus called us to be fishes of men. We know Jesus did miracles with the five loaves and two fishes. And of course, just like Tertullian said, we are born in water, speaking of the full immersion nature of baptism and calling us little fishes after the, our image of Christ, Ichthus. So you can see why they adopted this fish as such a powerful symbol to represent Christianity. Now, fast forward to today, we don't use the fish as much. You might see on a bumper sticker, on a car, or other stickers, even using those Greek letters. I don't know if you guys have seen that. But today, the most recognized symbol for Christianity is the cross. And it's a bit surprising to note that the cross was only started used after the time of Constantine, three centuries after Christ, in fact. And that symbol and that logo of the cross, we know what it means. We know what it stands for. We know that it depicts our Savior on the cross, dying for our sins, taking upon the sin of the world upon his shoulders that we may be spared and reunited with our Heavenly Father. The, the symbol of the cross is powerful to, to this day. And it is the symbol for Christianity to this day. I don't know how it is in the rest of the world, but in South Africa I've noticed, and I wonder if you have, is that the depreciated use of the cross in churches today, in their logos, in their, in their buildings, it's, it's something that harkens back to an era, but modern churches that start today, they don't necessarily present the cross as much as they used to. In fact, a lot of gatherings drop the name church. Many of them call themselves some colloquial name for the area or, or, or something that signifies maybe subtly Christianity or maybe not at all. But the word church is even dropped, isn't it? That's quite interesting. I find it interesting. And we don't have to discuss that too much today. I just It's just interesting to see these symbols not as used as much as they used to be. A rhetorical question I'd like to ask you is that are these historical symbols the distinguishing mark of our faith? Is the cross and the fish the thing that truly sets us apart as believers? No, certainly not. They're not what truly separates us as believers. You see, we're going to discuss what the real mark or the real brand of Christianity truly is. But before we do, we know today, and, and marketers and advertisers will tell you, branding is not just a symbol or a logo. It's not just a slogan that you can think up and, and present to your consumers like Apple did. Today, the world sees branding as far more than that. It's, it's go broadened, it's understanding greater, and rightly so. I'm going to give you a quote from an industry expert, an entrepreneur and blogger who thinks about marketing ideas in the digital age and is quite renowned today in the dot-com or post-dot-com era. His name is Seth Godin, and he says this about a brand. A brand is the set of expectations, memories, 
stories, and relationships that taken together account for a consumer's decision to choose one product or service over another. A brand is not defined by the organization, but it is the consumer's perception of the organization. So if we define brand as a set of expectations, memories, stories, relationships, and experiences, what is the true brand of Christianity? How can we define and describe our savior and the early church movement that exploded on the scene? For me, the true distinguishing mark of Christianity is love. And not just any love, but Christ's love, agape love. For me, John, the Apostle John summarizes it to the best. And we can, we'll be turning throughout the whole Bible today if I had to look for scripture references on love. But I've chosen one, the one that stands out the most for me. And that's 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. 1 John chapter 4, verse 78. I encourage you to turn in your own Bibles if you have a, a fancy new device or iPhone maybe. Turn to the Amplified Version. I'm going to be reading from that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 8 from the Amplified. This is what the Apostle John says. Beloved, let us unselfishly love and seek the best for one another. For love is from God. And everyone who loves others is born of God and knows God through personal experience. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God does not and never did know him. For God is love. He is the originator of love and it is an enduring attribute of his nature. I'm going to read that again one more time slowly just to for you to meditate on these words. Beloved, let us unselfishly love and seek the best for one another. For love is from God and everyone who loves Others is born of God and knows God through personal experience. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God, does not and never did know him. For God is love. He is the originator of love and it is an enduring attribute of his nature. I just love the way the Amplified puts it and ends it there that God is the originator of love. And it is an enduring attribute of his nature. From Jesus' birth and his life and his death and resurrection. And in continuation with those that he left and, and instructed to go out. We can see Christianity, all of its expectations, its memories, its stories, its relationships, its experiences are completely embodied in and by Christ's love. I don't think any of us would disagree with John's words here. When we've experienced that amazing love. That radical love that we felt on that day when we gave our hearts to the Lord. That is pivotal to our faith. What does this love that John tells us so, so poetically and powerfully in those short verses. What does it look like for us? living it out what does it truly look like for the world around us what does this love look like and if we once again pointed to the symbol of the cross we would be correct in stating that 
what it symbolizes and all it contains, perfectly demonstrating Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what this love looks like, this sacrificial love, this Christ love, his enduring attribute of his nature. But I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I feel that I'm unable, even as a believer, I struggle to love others like Christ has loved us. We say maybe Jesus could because he's love personified, like we just read. Well, let's challenge that, shall we? Let's challenge that, that doubtful way of thinking. Let's think different. Let's look at a small group of mavericks, although not perfect, displayed and demonstrated this perfect love in a dangerous, corrupt, and burning world around them. That, of course, was the early church, the first Christians. Before Christianity became mainstream and popular. You see, when we read about these accounts of the early church, I want us to acknowledge that it is not through their own efforts and works that they achieved this love. But it is rather through the Holy Spirit that when they all gathered together in unity in the upper room, they were filled and empowered with the very nature of Christ's love within them. The Holy Spirit gave them this enduring attribute of God's nature, of His love. You see, we see the true brand, the true distinguishing mark of Christianity being demonstrated, and radically so in the early church. When I speak of the early church, most of you would turn to Acts. So let's do that. Let's turn to Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, the English Standard Version. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. Again, this is a scripture we shouldn't be unfamiliar with because when we speak of the radical love of the early church, this is the first images that people get of that early church. Let's read. And they devoted themselves to the apostles, the apostles' teaching, and, the, and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all coming upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We can see how this radical love that was empowered with the Holy Spirit within them was burning strong. And it always flowed out. They took care of each other. They took care of people. It said they're loving all people and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. Any need that they recognized or found, they were there to meet it. Just like Jesus before them, they had compassion on people that they were surrounded with. And you can see the effect that it had. Their numbers grew spontaneously and incontrollably. They just exploded from an early church. Now, I don't want to just stop there on the biblical accounts of the early church. I want to show you that even though centuries would pass now, and we're going to fast forward a couple of centuries the early church's momentum did not stop. The radical love that they demonstrated did not, did not slow down. It accelerated. It grew. And still, 
as we pass in the centers, as we're going to study now in some examples that I give you, we see the same Christ love being demonstrated in the world. So let's time travel a bit. Let's go to the, the second century. And we will see that the Christians movement was known was a movement known of love and of charity. Remember I told you the the second century theologian Tertullian, we're going to quote him again. And this is what he says describing how Christians lived in his time in the second century and the reaction that they caused by the world caused the world around them. Let's read what he has to say about second century early church. He says it is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. And now he gives, as we're going to read the quote, he gives snapshots of the responses that the world, unbelieving world around them gives. He says, speaking about the unbelieving world, only look, they say, look how they love one another. And he says to Tillian, they themselves given to mutual hatred. Look how they prepared to die for one another. He quotes the unbelieving world and gives them a quote on them. He says, they themselves being ready to kill each other. Thus had this saying been fulfilled. Hereby shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. Let me read that again in one continuous flow. Tertullian speaking about second century Christendom. It is our care for the helpless, our practice for the loving kindness of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. They themselves being given to mutual hatred. Look how they, they are prepared to die for one another, one another. They themselves being ready to kill each other. Thus, had this saying been fulfilled, hereby shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have loved one to another. So we can see in second century, in the second century, how the church, still young in its infancy, still not institutionalized, still not popular, still not mainstream, still emerging, you can see the force that love challenged the world around them. Where the world was filled with hatred and wanting to kill one another, Christians were loving all people and they were willing to die for one another. Fulfilling the, the true commandment that Christ gave us to love one another as he loved, our, loved us. And that's how men will know that we are his disciples. You see, Christianity grew in those days not necessarily through evangelical outreaches, through missions, through sermons being broadcast. Rather, it was through the gospel of love and charity, through practical works of love. And these included giving of alms, care for widows, orphans, slaves, travelers, the sick, the imprisoned, and the poor. And you can see why as biblical as Jesus tells us to care for the least of these, when you serve the least of these, you are serving me, you are feeding me, you are clothing me, you are giving me something to drink. We can see how pivotal and central this is to the Christian faith. We, the Christians of those days were driven by the love of Jesus, and they went out and they expressed their love to their neighbors. We know if we had to go quickly through Acts, we know just for example when Peter Walk past a crippled beggar, and the beggar asks for silver and gold. And Peter says, I don't have silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. And he heals the cripple. Tabitha, 
also known as Dorcas, a lesser known character in the Bible, is cited as an early disciple, full of good works and acts of charity. You can read that in Acts 9, verse 36. In the emerging church, we see also how early Christians looked after widows and orphans, sick and disabled, prisoners, poor people, and even bodies that needed a burial, burial and no one wanted to bury, and slaves. We know slaves, the issue of slavery was pivotal in those days. Slavery was rife. And we just have to read the book of Solomon, uh, sorry, of Philemon to understand how Christianity challenged slavery from, from a subversive nature. Telling masters to treat their slaves as their brothers. Telling slaves to respect their masters as if they're serving Christ. You see, we also see how the early church cared for each other, even outsiders of the faith. In times of great calamities, when there were great struggles and ills. As well as how they showed hospitality to their fellow brethren who were on a journey. History is full of these accounts. And it's not just the Bible, but history books are full of accounts of believers living radically and loving radically, like Christ did. Let me give you another example, and let's fast forward to the fourth century. Another example of self-denying, self-emptying love, that these early believers, again, remember, the church is not yet institutionalized. We're going to discuss when that happens. But towards the end, three, towards 308 and 313 AD, there was a, a, a plague that broke out. And here's another historian of Christianity. Some call him the father of church history, Eusebius. And this is one of his accounts that has been translated for us today in English. And this is what he says about the Christians of his day in the fourth century. For the Christians were the only people who amid such terrible ills showed their fellow feeling and humanity. Sorry. And with such terrible ills showed their fellow feeling and humanity by their actions. Day by day, some would busy themselves with attending to the dead and burying them, for there were numbers to whom no one else paid any heed. Others gathered in one spot, all who were afflicted by hunger throughout the whole city, and gave bread to them all. When this became known, people glorified the Christian's God, and convinced by the very facts confessed the Christians alone were truly pious and religious. Basically, Eusebius is saying, in a time of plague where bodies were rife on the road, being causing death and disease around, and these bodies were probably rotting and, and disease full of plague, no one would bury them, no one would go near them to touch them because they would fear getting the plague. It was the Christians of that day that felt it was only right for them to get a proper burial, burial, and they would go and take these bodies, dig a grave, and they would bury them. Again, people that were afflicted with hunger, maybe they themselves were afflicted with the plague and no one wanted to go near them to give them food or to trade with them or to sell them any goods. It was the Christians who went to them and fed them. And we can read that this stood out in the world around them in the fourth century, where people said, they said, when this became known, People glorified the Christians' God and convinced by the very facts confessed the Christians alone were truly pious and religious. You see, the early Christian brand of love was a radical one that took people on radical trajectories. We see value of self-sacrificial love and other regard in the context of suffering and affliction 
based on the example of Christ and the apostles that came before them. By the early 4th century, this obscure movement of Christianity, this group of, of mavericks on the, on, the, on the margins of the Roman Empire would have grown to such an extent, they, they exploded and, and grew tremendously to such an extent that it would eventually become the official religion of the empire that previously oppressed them and killed them, the Roman Empire. This movement certainly impacted the world in many positive ways. Just think about that for a moment. We read in the story of the Bible, in the Acts, as you continue to read, how Christians were persecuted, Stephen being the first martyr, and how after that time Christians, Christianity spread throughout the world because they were pushed away. They were pushed. The Roman Empire saw them as a threat. They wanted to squash them. The, the Pharisees and Sadducees saw them as a threat, wanted to squash them. Now, think about how Centuries later, Christianity grew from such a small group of radical lovers that it transformed the whole world like we know today. And that the Roman Empire, the empire that once persecuted them, would adopt Christianity as the official religion. And we know, we know that story and we know where we find ourselves today. The question I'm asking myself and the question I'm asking you today is that and facing all us Christians is, are we more concerned with our own success, staying on the top of everything instead of seeking real change the gospel itself describes and exhorts? Do we love radically like the early church did? Are we as radical as Christ and the apostles were? And even like we read now in centuries after, examples that we've just studied. Or has success and the mainstream of Christianity resulted in its dilution and loss of this brand essence, this Christ-like love. The reason why I'm, I'm asking such challenging questions is I'm asking myself those questions. The more I give myself to study and encounter the word, and, and the more I see how radical this love was, this message, this gospel message that Jesus is preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, when he says, it's easy to love your neighbor, to love your friend, to love your family. But what I ask you to love your enemies. I mean, we don't have to. That's such a radical statement. And it's a statement that he himself followed through and demonstrated. So I'm, I myself am challenged. And that's why I'm presenting it to you. Because it's on my heart. As, as, as I challenge my, my own love walk. You know, it's easy to love my family around me. And, and to love my fellow Believers even in the church. But this world outside is crying for, for this Christ love. This radical love which I know can transform the world just like it did before. What I've realized is that radical love, which we all agree Jesus demonstrated as an, as, as an example to us and is now living inside of us. Radical love loves radically. It has to it has to find its expression. It has to love out, if you will. This message today is meant to stir your heart. It's meant to challenge your comfort and your faith. It's meant to challenge our faith to, you know, so often we, we point and direct our faith at things that we need personally. And nothing's wrong with that. Faith is there as a tool to give us to, to achieve what the Lord wants to, to achieve in our lives. But 
Maybe we should ask the Lord, where does he want our faith to be challenged? And truly he would say to us to love everyone that we come in contact with, to, to allow our hearts to grow so full of his, his enduring attribute of his very nature, of that love that encompasses our whole heart, that we cannot but love everyone that we come in contact with. Maybe that's a worthy target of our faith, is to stretch our hearts, to grow our hearts, to love the unlovable the one that the world does not love, to not judge, but to rather love like Jesus did when he went to the prostitutes, to to the tax collectors, people that were downcast and, and shunned from society. In closing, I would like to leave you with two quotes, words that are not my own, but words from, from a love maverick. A woman that demonstrated this radical Christ brand of love. A love that this world has seen not so long ago. Something that I, in my, in my growing up as a kid, was, was on the TVs, was on the radio stations, was in magazines. This woman demonstrated love that everybody in our society, everybody within the world, took note of. It's the words of Mother Teresa. Let me read. Two quotes from her. The first quote, she accurately diagnoses what I'm trying to say today of the modern ills of our world. This is what she says in diagnosing the Western world. She says, The great disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine. But the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are far many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There is a hunger for love, as there is a hunger for God. She so powerfully puts it cuts through the heart of our modern age and declares that this, this Western world is poor in such a different way, in such a desperate way. We are poor for the hunger of love and for the hunger of God. But I love that she didn't just critique the world. She didn't just point fingers. In fact, she showed the world how to, to, to be the solution for this poverty, for this hunger, for this need for Christ. And this second quote is the way she presented the solution as we as Christ ones are to do. She says, let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness. Kindness in your face. Kindness in your eyes. Kindness in your smile. Let me read that again and let me and paraphrase it. She says to us believers, to us Christ carriers, to us who carry the Holy Spirit, the enduring attribute of love. She says to us, let no one ever come to you without leaving better or happier. Be the living expression of God's love. Love in our face, love in our eyes, and love in our smile. You see, Mother Teresa, in such a light way but powerful, challenges us Christians to whoever we interact with, whoever we 
we bump into the road, just like in the early days of the church, that instead of drawing a fish on the ground, we draw in our, in our response, in our actions, in our desire towards others, we draw, we draw to them Christ's love. That we, we show the true tangible essence, the true tangible distinguishing mark of Christianity is that we demonstrate just like Jesus, just like the apostles, and just like the early church continued, we draw Christ's love to the world around us. I, for myself, I see a world desperate for this type of love. In a world full of division and strife, arguing who's, which way is the other, where we see the liberals being more div- div- divisive than, than others, this world is crying out for a love that just, just dilutes all of that and says we love everyone the way Christ loved us. So I just hope today, it's a challenging message, I, I don't deny that. It's something that is challenging me. Every time in South Africa, we get confronted with need every five minutes, if not sooner. Need is always there. I'm challenged to not just meet that need superficially, but make sure that people, when they encounter me, when they encounter, they encounter Christ's love, that I not only do things, but I share the, the love of Christ with them, that they know that that moment when they encounter, like Mother Teresa said, when they encountered my face, when they encountered my eyes and my smile, they encountered Christ. And yeah, I just hope that that encourages you wherever you are in the world, that we be Christ, just like Christ asked us to others around us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message. For additional resources or more information about this ministry, come and visit us at alphaomegaint.org.za.